I won't ask you here because this is all recorded, but I hope you smoke weed. If you I don't, do you should. You should. Oh, you're crazy. <laughs> it would really help your entire life and everything that you're doing with school. Welcome to Criminalized. In this podcast, I examine what it means to be deemed criminal in America. I'm Sarika Ram. This episode is about Calvin Feliciano. He's the political director for a local union that helped to organize the Jobs Not Jails campaign. That campaign pushed for ending mass incarceration and funding job creation in Massachusetts. We eliminated mandatory minimum sentencing, which is when they get you for drug dealing um, and they're able to give you a mandatory minimum sentence, meaning regardless of what a judge might want to do, you have to get this amount of time. And those kind of things, I mean, you do a three year bid and like you're done. You do three years and straight in jail one time, you're done. Think about three years today. Think about if you somehow went away in 2015 and you come home today to this world. That's a crazy world which has happened. You just went from like the cool black guy that everyone was hopeful for being president to like the fascist. Like that's where you just went in three years. Like think about what three years does to a world to go in in three years and come out three years later. Your life is almost done. And so... We eliminated those. We got so many good provisions in the bill in terms of reducing recidivism. What we passed is going to make a big dent in sort of mass incarceration. Calvin's a big Latino guy and exactly what you'd want out of a community organizer. He has an infectious energy, a booming voice, and he's absolutely hilarious. When I first met Calvin for this interview, he walked into the studio with his Starbucks drink in hand, took a puff from his vape and said, all right, let's do this. Before Calvin became a voice for the Jobs Not Jails campaign, he was a young person of color growing up in the housing projects of the South End, who constantly got in trouble. We all just kind of did street things as kids, you know? It starts when you're sort of hanging out outside, playing manhunt and joking around and, you know, doing stupid things that young kids do. And then it turns into, you know, when you become a teenager and we're 12 and 13 and now you're getting into fights and now you're experimenting with drugs. Now you're fighting and now violence gets introduced. Incarceration gets introduced. Now people are going back and forth to jail. Now people are involved in sort of gang problems and violence. And, and that puts you down a spiral that, you know, ends really bad. Interesting. And so you sort of talked a little bit about the, you know, gang life and street things. So sort of, I guess, describe what that consisted of, what that sort of dynamic was between, you know, the kids that you, I guess, affiliated with mm-hmm. in your gang and others in the area. So you're from the housing development that you're from, right? And you sort of build a camaraderie with kids that are from that development. You all live in the same name, right? It could be Villa Victoria Housing. It could be, uh, um, you know, or- Orchard Park. It could be, you know, Heat Street Projects. It could be, you know, these whatever name it was and you guys click up and the sort of gang uh, problems that your predecessors had, the people that are 10 years older than you, you inherit that. So at 12 and 13 years old, we knew that we weren't supposed to like kids from that neighborhood, this other neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And it starts you on this path where we're starting to fight in middle schools and we're starting to see each other places and fight and this violence happens. Um, so we would just hang out all day. You know, we just hung out and, and, and figured stupid things to do. In Boston and across America, kids and communities of color are funneled into the juvenile justice system. They often grow up in segregated and over-policed neighborhoods, go to underfunded schools, and are caught in cycles of poverty and incarceration. Your environment is everything. Mm -hmm. It is everything. And so, you know, we grew up, I mean, you knew what gunshots sounded like at four and five years old. 
we, I want to say we were seven. We saw a person, a young man gunned down in the park. Um, you know, we witnessed that at seven years old. They cornered the entire area. He, he actually collapsed in the uh, basketball court portion. They cornered it off for maybe five days. And when we were allowed back, you could still see the dark spots where the stains of his blood was. And so what was the like the police presence in and around these neighborhoods that you lived in? Heavy presence. Yeah. Heavy presence. Um, very oppressive. It was always be like white cops mm-hmm. from faraway neighborhoods. They always treated us like trash. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when you have the embedded racism that people have here, right, when you just have that naturally, and then you are patrolling a community that is made up of said awful people, you're going to treat them bad, you know? So, like, a white cop will look at, an officer Flaherty is going to look at some young kid, you know, some young Billy Doherty, Billy Flynn, Billy whatever, and, like, that kid, man, yeah, they broke a window like that. That that looks like your nephew. He might be your nephew. Mm. You know what I mean? And so you straighten the kid out. You slap him upside the head. You bring him to his mom. Like, that's what a white cop will do in South Boston. Mm. In, in a ghetto, that white cop's going to take that opportunity to punch that kid in the head really hard and take him to jail. In Boston, low-income communities of color, Roxbury, Dorchester, and the South End have the highest incarceration rates. But it's not because the people there are more likely to commit crime. It's because poor black and brown people living in segregated neighborhoods are the designated target of Broken Windows policing. Broken Windows policing was an approach thought up in the 80s by two Harvard researchers, George Kelling and James Wilson, who theorized that if you want to prevent crime, you have to create social order. They thought that getting rid of petty crimes like vandalism, loitering, and drug use in quote-unquote disheveled and decaying neighborhoods would prevent more serious crimes and help to create safe communities. Forty years later, it's safe to say that Broken Windows policing in practice hasn't lived up to the theory. That's because the very basis of Broken Windows policing is discriminatory. The theory assumes that crime only happens in certain types of places and never in others. This dangerous assumption has created significant racial and socioeconomic disparities in the criminal justice system. Black and brown kids in low-income communities are more likely to be arrested and incarcerated for doing the same things that white kids in upper-class neighborhoods do. For example, here at Boston University, where I go to school, kids smoke weed and drink alcohol underage, get in fights, and steal bikes and expensive electronics all the time but they're not usually getting busted by the police for doing it. But a kid like Calvin, who lives in a low-income housing project in the South End, will be. I mean, I don't know, four, five years old, Mm -hmm. I already was like, F the police, you know? I'm assuming we can't swear here. But I already was like, F the police at like five. At five, we know the police officers ain't ish. We know that they ain't worth it and they don't like us and they're not here to help us. Um, And that, that sucks. There's a sociological term for what Calvin's describing here called legal cynicism. Legal cynicism is a distrust of law enforcement that's really common in poor neighborhoods of color that often experience heavy police presence. Tell me about the first time you were arrested. First time I was arrested? Um, uh, I think one time, um, the first time we might have been 10 or 11, and we were playing baseball. What happened that day? Something happened. We were definitely playing baseball on this little lot where you're not supposed to. Um, and 
uh, cops came for some reason and asked us questions or something, and we sort of were like flipped to them, and so they decided to then roughhouse us and, you know, uh, uh, put us in cuffs and things like that, and then our mothers came. So they didn't actually arrest us, although they put us in cuffs. The first time that it was an actual arrest, we were in a, a record store. You don't know what a record store is, do you? I do know what a record do store you? is, yes. Good, okay. <laughs> you know, so record stores, right? You go to Sam Goody, you go to Strawberry, you go to Tower Records, um, and cassette tapes, and we would steal them. So mm. we were stealing cassette tapes um, and uh, got arrested. Yeah. At the record store. We were like 12 or 13 or something. For kids like Calvin, this world is normal. Calvin couldn't even remember the first time he was arrested when I first asked. And he talks about being beat by the police like it's nothing. Even school didn't feel safe to him. And so what were like the teachers and sort of resources like in your school? Like, were they... I mean, obviously... Resources yeah. non-existent. Yeah. Bad schools, right? Like, crappy buildings that look like prisons. Mm -hmm. Cramped classes. You know, if you had 30 kids in a school, you probably had 21 books mm -hmm. for those kids. So there would always be nine children that somehow trying to learn reading on a same textbook with another kid, which is insane. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one guidance counselor per 700 kids. You know, I mean, it was ridiculous. Um and the teachers were largely white suburban teachers who were super nasty to us. Mm. Um, sometimes you'd get these good teachers who did it from the grace of their hearts because they, you know, whatever. But oftentimes it would be these mean like teachers from the white teachers from the suburbs um, who treated us like crap. My mother hated the teachers growing up. It seems like there's such a gap between like, the serious experience you're having at home and then I feel like school could seem kind of pointless. So I was wondering mm. like, what your relationship was with school and education. Is that something? It meant absolutely nothing yeah. to anyone. I mean, it just is like, you know, how many people do you know graduate college? I mean, very few. Very, you just didn't know of those type of people. I spent very little time in school past sixth grade, uh, and a lot of us did. You know, I mean, you just you get to sixth grade, and you're 12 and 13, and you know we were already into the wrong things. I mean, I, I set records. I got I got suspended 22 times in the sixth grade, um, three day suspension. So I, I barely passed the sixth grade, barely passed the seventh grade, um, and I was getting suspended dozens of times a year. Uh, you know, skipping school, cutting class, you know, fighting in school, getting kicked out. Um, uh, get, starting to go to jail, get incarcerated and miss large amounts of school. I didn't graduate high school. I got expelled for having a gun in school. You know, I mean, we couldn't get to school safely without guns sometimes. Mm -hmm. So if I couldn't, you know, like one time she caught me with it and I'm like, if I can't bring it to school, I can't go to school because I might not make it home. Right. But the schools were our garbage. I mean, that's part of why it's, something, it's always so interesting talking to people who come from very privileged situations, even when they don't realize some of that privilege. And like the schools in poverty and impoverished communities are are trash. You have 30 kids to a class. Those kids are dealing with such deep traumas. I went to a school with a girl who was getting molested by a stepdad. She attempted suicide. Mm. You know what I mean? You're going to school with kids who are being raped at home. Kids are being beat at home, mixture of those at home. Kids like me who are going back and forth to jail. Kids who are coming to school. I remember one time, might have been four, I might have been 13 or something in the eighth grade. Um, I came to school super tired, got into a fight, left. Why? Because me and my mom were up all night fighting some damn man who was trying to put his hands on her, right? So you spend hours on end. You finally go to bed at 4 a.m. when everyone's sleeping, finally, when the fight is done. And you, then you're going to go to school three hours later? And I just remember being tired. I kind of was dozing off. And the teacher, like, like, sort of like, get up, Mr. Feliciano, you know, slapped their hands or something. And I was like, 
are you effing and you know like I just like flipped on them and then got kicked out of class for that and then got into the hallway and got into an altercation with a teacher and they weren't able to see like that's what a kid's bringing into school mm -hmm. so you see this ignorant super predator you know gang member child and you don't know that like I snap because I'm on edge in many ways, the public school system is out of touch with the experiences of kids like Calvin. But there is one way that school resembles home. What was the police presence like around your school? It was always crazy. I got arrested in school several times. Huh. Um, so that's where really your school resource officer who's, you know, harassing you. Mm -hmm. They would always like to have cops in the schools. One time um, when I got kicked out, I went to several middle schools. One of them was an alternative school for sort of criminally involved children. And um, there would always be this cop there, and he was always antagonizing people. We all hated him, wished death upon him, and talked about it and planned it maybe a few times. And, like, one, one time there was a kid sort of acting up in class, and he came and was like, step out, step out, get out. Like, he came, and uh, the kid, like, was angry, grabbed his stuff. I'll never forget it. He grabbed his stuff. He gets up. He's storming out. And as he's storming out, now we're in eighth grade. This kid's 13 years old. Maybe 14. Some of us got kept back. So as he's storming out, he sort of shoulders the teacher a little bit. He mm -hmm. sort of shoulders the, the resource officer. Mm -hmm. Salt and battery. Grabs the kid. Slams him on the wall. Now you're fighting. Right? Like, I get that I blew by you. A kid has to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. I've got a 13-year-old. If you're not patient with those little, you know, those, those, those little effers, <laughs> if you're not patient with them, you'll kill them. Right? Because they're annoying. So you got to have that patience. You got to know how to de-escalate things. You got to know that violence isn't a smart way to deal with children. So if a kid walks by and bumps you, you no. Know, should he have done that? No. You know, like, we're going to talk through that. But he took it as, you bumped me. That's assault. He grabbed him, slammed him against the wall. That kid is like, get the F off me. Now you're in a violent altercation in the hallway. That kid's struggling. You're struggling. Restrain him and arrest him and call the police. And now you're arresting him. He's in cuffs and he has a criminal record for the rest of his life for acting up in class and then storming out of a classroom and bumping the shoulder of some school resource officer. It's just insane that that would trigger criminal charges on a 13-year-old. This is what researchers call the school-to-prison pipeline. This is the idea that schools in poor neighborhoods of color are funneled from their schools into the juvenile justice system because of unnecessarily harsh school disciplinary policies and the presence of what are called school resource officers. School resource officers are police officers employed by the local police force who are assigned to school campuses to promote school safety. The school resource officer program became particularly popular in the American public school system in the 1990s due to the rise of high-profile school shootings. However, the presence of law enforcement has made school feel unsafe to many young people. The students who are arrested and even sentenced to time in prison for misbehaving in school tend to be black and brown kids, kids with disabilities, and kids who identify as LGBTQ. For the longest time in Massachusetts, kids as young as seven years old could be held criminally responsible and tried in juvenile court. Just last year, the minimum age was raised to 12. Do you remember what was going through your head when you first said that, okay, you're going to be in confinement? Like, what were your expectations going into that? Um, it was awful. Oh my God. So my grandmother came to court. My mother couldn't come to court cause she had a job. Mm -hmm. She was one of the parents that worked, right? So a bunch of my friends, parents didn't work and she can come to court. My mom worked, couldn't come to court. And she's like, I can't lose his job. So I can't. And I understand that. 
So my grandmother came with me that day. Um, and they committed me to DYS, which they commit you till you're 18, which means you're on probation till 18, which means you're te- technically in custody until that time, even if you're technically out of jail. And they brought me in for eight, uh, eight months. And it was just crazy because my grandmother broke out into a very dramatic, like almost died heart attack in the courtroom. It was awful. She's begging the judge to like not lock you up. The judge doesn't give a damn. Um, she falls to the ground, is now having a heart attack, is now and now you're being restrained and you're calling for your freaking grandma. And it is a traumatic traumatic experience it's just it's hard to explain yeah. hard to explain using your freedom at such a young age it's really criminal it should be like war crime yeah. it is just like the worst thing that you could do i don't care what a kid did sure. you know i mean that's the worst way to handle it so yeah went in did eight months that was the first time i did eight months again another time and i think a couple months maybe six months another time i did a total of almost two years between 12 and 17. Yeah. So what were the circumstances that caused that first eight-month sentence? Um, the first eight months, selling weed. The second eight months, um, I got, like, jumped on a gang level and stabbed somebody. Oh. Um, and, yeah, you know, I mean... Wow. Sort of standard stuff. Unfortunately, uh, it wasn't even that bad, and people were getting shot and killed. I sort of had a knife for protection and found myself in a train. You know, when you're in neighborhoods, right, like being outside your neighborhood is dangerous. That's why we didn't oftentimes go outside the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, being caught at some downtown place or some train station, you know, you might see four kids from another neighborhood, and you're by yourself. And so, you know, I had a knife with me and um, sort of got jumped and stabbed someone and went to jail. Um so, yeah. yeah. And sort of describe what it's like on the inside. Oh, it's awful. Um, you're in jail. So, one, it looks like a jail. Hmm. Right? Bars, windows, uh, very little windows, very small cells. I mean, probably a fourth of the size of this place right here, hmm. this room we're in. You had a bunk bed, um, and they were both twin-sized beds. And then you had a little bit of room, and he had a small, small table and a toilet with a little sink. So you just, there was no room. Like you're in a really small, like closet style thing. You know, you have to ask for permission for everything to use the restroom, to uh, do this, to do that, to stand up. There was set recreational times and times where you were just in yourself for hours and hours and hours. That is hard to be 15 years old and spend, you know, 18 hours of a day in a cell. It's just insane on the mind. And so what were like the educational resources available in prison? Ah, they are super funny. So juvenile is, um, is because you're juveniles, there are things according to the Constitution they have to do for you. Um, so like you have to go to school in adult jail. You're just going to sit there. They don't want you to go to school, right? They don't want to pay for you to go to school. Juveniles, you have to go to school, but they, they had two different classes. One was like, begin. one was regular and one was sort of advanced, but you would have a couple thousand kids to that, to that facility. The beginner classes, kids that are 11 to 14. I mean, that's a crazy sort of like spread of yeah. children in a room. You got 30 kids to teach. You know, they're 11 through 14. Mm. Some can't read. Some can. Mm. Some have done no math aside from selling drugs. Some have. But it was the biggest joke ever. Mm. And I hated it because I was always so advanced for it. So even the advanced class, which was for kids who were 15, 16, 17, 
just sucked. It was so boring and so it was awful. It was awful, awful, awful. And you had to talk to a social worker. And all the social workers were always like 20 to 24 year old white girls that were social workers that were sometimes in school, sometimes just getting degrees. One time I opened up and a social worker sort of asked me, you know, they're mandated reporters, right? Yeah. So one time a social worker said to me, um, she was like, you know, have you ever been involved with um, gun violence? Like, have you ever experienced that or whatever? And I said, yeah, you know, I mean, they're easy to get to. Like, I sort of opened up a little bit, which is a huge freaking mistake. She had to report it. And I got flagged for it. And now I had an extra mark in my book as like this kid's potentially involved in gangs and, and guns, you know. And like, I remember being like, I'm never talking to you again, Becky. Like, you got this 22 year old white girl here talking to me. You know, you're gonna ask me some psych question. You're here shrinking me. Like, we're having a therapeutic sort of session. And I mentioned something that's a traumatic thing that you could, you know, that if you're actually trying to help someone on a clinical level, you would want to hear that and you would want to keep that bond. And no, they would sell us up the river. So and everyone knew that you learned that very quickly. So those weren't real sessions. Now you're just you're kind of kicking it with a social worker. For kids like Calvin, who spend a couple months at a time in prison, the transition back to school and the community is a difficult one. That's where people like Janelle Ridley come in. Janelle is the district coordinator for system-involved youth with the Boston Public Schools. She works with system-involved youth and helps them successfully re-enter into school. What is the school-to-prison pipeline, and how has that manifested itself historically in Boston and in the U.S. more generally, too? So the school-to-prison pipeline, I mean, it's something that's nationally known, but it, I feel as if it looks differently across states. I think, I think for, for Boston, what it is is that school is the first sort of system that young people come into, and that's where they learn discipline and authority, right? And so for young people who are coming in and come, are coming from a home environment that where their norm looks very different than the expectations of schools and what society has sort of labeled as this is what a perfect child or a normal child's behavior should look like, is where the sort of budding of um, expectations come from. And so when children come into the school system, especially at a young age, what they are used to in their home environment, they sort of bring into their school environment. I think because you have so many um, teachers in the school district that are not culturally aware of what these young people are dealing with, although we have a lot of um, information and research out there about trauma-informed care and trauma-informed practices. But at the end of the day, you know how to actually implement it into their classroom, how to actually implement those relationships is not what's happening. So you get a lot of disruptive behavior from students. You get a lot of going back and forth. And then at the end of the day, you have a fed up student, a fed up teacher, and that starts the trips to the principal's office or the headmaster's office that starts the relationship with the dean of disciplines and, you know, school police. Yeah. And I'm wondering, because the idea of the of, of students being police, like having police officers affiliated with schools, to me seems kind of drastic. So I'm wondering What's the origin of sort of that approach to disciplining kids? So with school police, that sort of came about in, in two ways. It came after the war on drugs and especially, you know, the situation in Columbine um, with, you know, the, the, sc the school shooting. 
So that really led to um, culture feeling as if police were necessary um, to be present in the schools. But what's interesting about all of that, that I always say, is all these school shootings are happening not in inner city areas. All these school shootings are happening in areas that are not heavily policed. And so with the Reagan administration, the war on drugs and just, you know, drugs coming into the city, there was this sort of idea that black and brown young boys and girls needed to be closely watched because of whatever was happening in their communities. And so it's it's no wonder that, you know, the Department of Youth Services, the majority of the kids you will see there are black and brown, regardless of the region of the facility in Massachusetts, as well as, you know, the correctional facilities, black and brown again. And in the two years that I've been working in conjunction with the Department of Youth Services, you know, I can count on one hand how many white young boys I've seen um, in that facility. I'm wondering, like, to what extent, um, or I guess why the system is so disproportionately black and brown? To what extent is it discrimination? And to what is extent that um, communities of color are funneled into these cycles of incarceration and poverty? I think for me, right, you know, and the, the I, I seen it because I grew up in a um, area where the majority of students were white, right? And the opportunities, the access, and the resources are very different from those schools than in the inner city schools. And although the, um, Boston is a resource-rich community, the outcomes of what programming is supposed to be is, is very different. And the expectations um, a lot of these resources have for our young people are very low. And so Who's getting the resources? Who's going to access a lot of these opportunities, right? And are the conversations being ha held with all of our students, right, as to what's out there, what's available to them? And parents don't know necessarily how to navigate the resources or find the resources in our opportunities for their young people. Because, again, if the schools are not doing enough to have the conversations with every student and every parent, regardless of their home situation, even if they may not be living with mom and dad, but an aunt or an uncle or grandmother, or if they are in DCF custody, are we having the conversations with those social workers to say, hey, you know, we know Tyreek is struggling and this is what we can do to put in place. We want to make sure he's successful. And I think if we were more intentional about making sure every kid was successful and every kid had access to, to um, programming, as well as just counseling, you know, just the things that they would need to sort of circumnavigate their environmental circumstances that they have no control over, right? None of these kids have control over where they live, what neighborhood they grow up in, and the people that live there. It's it's not their choice, right? And I honestly believe if they did, nobody would want to say they want to live in a crime-filled, poverty-stricken area. Boston is a resource-rich community. There are after-school clubs, sports, and tutoring services students can get involved in through the public school system. 
There are tons of resources and programming available at the Boston Public Library, from resume writing workshops to SAT prep classes. But as Janelle points out, what good are these resources if the kids who need them most aren't aware of them or that they don't feel that those spaces are meant for them? Calvin's story is an example of resources working. This youth organization called Teen Empowerment uh, came to my community. They were giving jobs for people, youth organizers. Mm -hmm. um, and I took one of them. It was great. And, um, you know, they sort of trained us in politics and social justice. Mm -hmm. And that's what got me out. That's what I was just I got hooked on that. Mm -hmm. um, and that was really my schooling. But um, if you make us a path, we'll take it. Mm -hmm. We'll take a path. There's just no paths in our lives. But whenever we get a path, man, we'll take it. Um, you know, I've seen the hardest guys I see sometimes on Facebook or they'll call me or something. And they're like, man, if you heard of anything, a job, I would do it. If it was doing what you're doing, I'd take that chance. Mm. You know, and they just want to leave the life. Um, and you can't. It's just like it stalks you. And so I'm wondering, like looking, you know, back at, you know, the friends that you've kept in contact with, have they been able to similarly exit sort of no. the cycle? No, mm -hmm. no, nope. No, no, no. Um, I am. I am. Uh, and I don't want to be. I don't say this to try to brag one in a million. I mean, mm. how do you? Mm. I got lucky. They caught me at 17. I, I turned 18 in, in March of 2003. So they caught me in October of 2002. Yeah. And I was 17. Like I, I was still within the brink. Right. Once you pass the brink of no return, once you're catching adult charges again and again and again, and you're all of a sudden, you know, doing time. And now you have an adult criminal record that is nasty. What are you going to do? The, the, the avenues, the lanes just close on you. And it becomes, you know... If you're lucky enough, if you're somehow lucky to get a blue collar job, if you somehow, one of my friends got really lucky, went onto a job site, he's a union painter, and he makes a decent living, right? And he's never gonna get back in trouble. But th those are so lucky. So many others have done time in jail, bad records, can't code switch, so you're not employable. So the real struggle is how do we create pathways where people that are in poverty, that are about to enter a life of constant um, incarceration, how do we give them a pathway out? And whenever you do, you get me. You get me. You get the kids that, you know, at 17, my mother never thought, she always thought oh, you'd be dead or in jail. Mm. That's what everyone said. And it's so good mm. to be 33 years old and think back on my life right now and think, I never thought I'd hit 25. And I'm 33 and I'm a karate dad. I, you know, I, my kids go to karate. I got a 13 year old and a seven year old and they're both crazy. And it's like fun, right? Like it's fun. I got a wife and a home and, um, and, you know, we can we can absolutely change the world and keep people safe doing it. The idea that the only way to keep people safe is to incarcerate, to punish harshly, to be tough on crime. Those things keep you unsafe because all they do is put people in jail and more people going to jail mean a community's less safe, ironically. This is what's called the prison paradox. There's been research that shows that incarceration in communities with already high incarceration rates actually increases crime. The theory goes that high rates of imprisonment break apart families and communities, limit opportunities for neighborhoods to flourish, and fosters resentment toward law enforcement. Combined, these factors funnel poor people of color into cycles of incarceration because they don't have the support systems or economic opportunities to find a path out. Calvin is just one of thousands of young people who demonstrate the prison paradox. He was arrested too many times to count, 
and he served two prison sentences, but that didn't stop him from getting into trouble when he could. Every encounter Calvin had with the justice system only further isolated him from his family and education and contributed to his mountain of trauma. It was only until a youth organization came to his community, told him they cared about him regardless of his record, and gave him a path to earn money legally that he was able to exit the cycle of incarceration. Calvin is a rare example of how to meaningfully divert young people away from the justice system. When a kid gets into a fight in school or is caught selling drugs, the reaction can't be to separate him and label him as a bad kid. Instead, teachers, administrators, and justice system officials need to acknowledge with compassion that a young person's behavior is the product of his circumstances. With that understanding, young people can instead be directed to job opportunities, counseling, and after-school programming, the kind of resources that gave Calvin a path out. You've been listening to Criminalized. There's plenty of ways for you as listeners to become involved in issues of juvenile justice in Massachusetts. Citizens for Juvenile Justice is an organization that advocates for statewide systemic reform to achieve equitable youth justice. On their website, you'll find the various bills they're advocating for and a script for how to show your support when you call your legislators. You can tutor incarcerated youth through the PD Green program or become a mentor through the local Boys and Girls Club. For more information about ways to get involved, check out the Criminalized website at criminalized.org.